You are listening to The Investor Way with Sam Ball and Jonathan McEwen. If you enjoy the show, please subscribe and follow us on Twitter at TIWTweets. Hello, welcome to The Investor Way with me, Sam Ball, my co-host, John McEwen. In this week's episode, we'll be discussing Fever Tree, Trainline, Kingfisher, Schroeder's, Ocado, and Bumble. John, should we start off with Fever Tree? Yes. So Fever Tree, the AIM-listed tonic maker, had their full-year results out this week, with full-year revenue rising 26% to $311.1 million, ignoring the effect of exchange rates with growth in all of their markets. And supermarket sales have remained above pre-pandemic levels, with sales in the on-trade recovering in the second half. As a result, EBITDA grew 10.3% to £63 million, but margins fell back from 22.6% to 20.2%. In a little bit more detail then, in the UK, revenue was up 15% to £118.3 million, with a recovery of the on-trade business, sales growing 59%, but off-trade sales remaining in line with the exceptional year of 2020, in spite of bars and pubs reopening. In the US, revenue was up 41% to £77.9 million, with premium spirits and mixes becoming more popular. In the fourth quarter, Fever Tree's second production site was launched, with production to increase in the first half of 2022, which should bring costs down in their supply chain in the States. Similarly to the UK, off-trade sales remain strong, but broadly in line with 2020. In Europe, revenue was up 40% to £88.2 million, with a return of tourists boosting on-trade sales, particularly with new flavours like rhubarb and raspberry tonic and strong sales in the supermarkets. In the rest of the world, sales grew 6% to £26.7 million, with strong growth in Australia and Canada, and a continued push in Asia, entering another three markets. Free cash flow came in at £43.2 million, compared with £35.5 million in 2020, and net cash was up to £166.2 million from £143.1 million in 2020. With these results, Fever Tree said that they expected to deliver revenue growth of 14 to 17% in the new financial year, but due to significant uncertainty in relation to input costs, cash profit growth is expected to be limited, and they downgraded their guidance from between 69 to £72 million pounds to 63 to £66 million. Pounds. The market didn't like and didn't anticipate this, and shares were down 8.3%. They did increase the final dividend 2% to 15.9p, alongside a special dividend of 42.9p. In terms of valuation, Fevertree has a market cap of £2.15 billion and trades at 36.6 times earnings, compared with an average forward price-to-earnings ratio of 47.7 since listing in 2014. The shares currently yield in the region of 1%. I thought these results were good, but clearly not as good as they should be for such a highly valued company. And it's going to be a true test for Fever Tree in the inflationary environment that we're now in and how desirable their offering is and how many people are willing to pay up for it. And I think it's also worth mentioning that the margins are going to come under extreme pressure. And they've already said that they're going to be 
down at least 2% from what they are at the moment, which is around 20%. And the other thing that's worth mentioning is that the on-trade demand is still behind that that we saw in 2019, the pre-pandemic levels. I think what's exciting about the business and I suppose behind a lot of the share price is the potential in the U- in the US with this British premium play and something that does have, albeit sort of pressured margins, decent margins, and that huge potential for growth over there. It's already saturated the British market. And if it could do the same in the US, you know, the shares on that basis would be cheap. And I suppose that that's what people are are hoping for when they invest in Fevertree. Sam, what are your thoughts on on these results from Fevertree? I think the results for the year they've just reported are excellent. I think the highlight for me would be the 41% US growth. I think that's fantastic. And I think that could, like you say, I think the US market could be a lot, lot bigger than the UK. The guidance is concerning. 14 to 17% growth is not very high for a business. I know it's come down quite a bit since we last covered it, but a P of 36, that's still expensive for that kind of growth. I don't know if they would then surprise me. I, I suppose the only thing is if I was looking at it, if I'm looking at the figures next year, I'm just going straight to the US figure. That's the one I'm interested in. Mm. If they deliver on US again, I'd say 36 times earnings could be justified. But I think last time, it has come down a lot since we last covered it. I think when we last covered it, it was getting on for, it was probably about £25 a share and it's about 18 now. Last time we covered it, I think we, we both saw, we both said that we like the business, but it's expensive. I think it was at a P of close to 50 in line with the average. I think we both said, well, if it, if it got cut in half, maybe we'd have a look at it. It's not, it's just not there yet. <laughs> yeah. Will it get there though? Yeah, no, it's, it's the same. I mean, I think at a fair of, well, fair evaluation, at a lower valuation, I would definitely be interested, but you can say that about a lot of businesses and that's the difficulty. Mm. I think it's interesting as well. Over the last five years, the shares are only up 24% now after that pullback. Mm. Uh, yeah. So it is, it is a good example of businesses growing into the valuation. Because if you look at, you know, I'll just get up the last five years of financials, but they are fantastic. And mm. the PE, what you will have had is you will have had some serious multiple compression. Yeah. Um, yeah. So the last five years, revenues up from 170 million to 311 million. And operating profits actually pretty much the same, but I guess they've just been plowing that back into the business. But it's a business that's almost doubled, mm. and the shares are only up twenty four percent. So yeah. it does show that you can you can overpay for these businesses, and the valuation yeah. does matter. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> he said with Peloton in his portfolio. Yeah, well, exactly, exactly. Very, very, very difficult. Okay, fine. Let's move on. Train line. Yes, train line. So for anyone who doesn't know, it's the app that you use to buy train tickets. They have come out with a full year trading statement. And on the UK consumer side of the business, net sales are, in fact, I'll do I'll do the actual increases first. So yeah, for the UK consumer side of the business, net sales are up 283% year over year to 1.8 billion. Trainline Partner Solution sales were up 284% and 290 million. International sales were up 78% to 418 million. 
And total group sales were up 222% overall to 2.5 billion. In terms of revenue, so that's just the net ticket sales. In terms of the actual revenue they take, UK consumer revenue is up 248% to 153 million. Trainline Partner Solutions revenue is up 26% to 15 million. International revenue is up 85% to 21 million. And the total revenue for the group was up 85, was up 181% to 189 million. However, now those are some very impressive figures of everything up about 200%. If you compare those figures to the 2020 figures, UK consumer ticket sales are only at 89%. Trainline Partner Solutions ticket sales are only at 24%. International sales are only at 85%. And overall, the sales, uh, the net ticket sales are only at 68% of the 2020 levels. If you do that quarter by quarter of the year, in the first quarter, they were only at 37%, increasing to 71% in the second quarter, all the way up to 86% in the third quarter, and then dropping in, down to 75% in the last quarter due to the new variant. So they've highlighted that before Omicron, group net ticket sales had, had recovered to 86% at the same period in 2020, the highest level since the start of the pandemic. Adjusted EBITDA for the 2022 year is expected to be around the top end of the previously guided range of 35 to 40 million. They've highlighted a driving shift towards digital ticketing. In the UK, e-ticket penetration increased to 41% in Q3, and that compares to 30% in 2021 and 21% in 2020, with significant runway ahead. I do think this is one of the things that is worth highlighting, because I think highlighting because I think that increased penetration, I think once the actual ticket sales for trains recover to the pre-pandemic levels, assuming they do, I think the e-ticket penetration... I don't see that dropping back down. I think once people have gotten used to the e-tickets, it is a lot easier not having to stand there and like get mm. it from a machine and just having it on your phone and not having to, you know, you can do it on the way rather than having to get there in time to get the ticket and stuff. So I, I think they could benefit from that quite significantly. And they've highlighted that their international growth acceleration plans are well underway and having an impact. Having recently added Trenitalia France to their inventory and launched their first major brand campaign in Italy. If we look at the valuation the, com the company has a market cap of 983 million there are no earnings but it trades at 5.2 times the sales and if it does come in at the top of the guidance it would be at 24 times the adjusted EBITDA so make of that what you will in terms of the actual financials because it only listed a few years ago but in terms of the financials since it listed oh we've only got two years figures the financials are actually pretty poor. 2019 to 2020, revenue grew about 20, 25% and then fell off a cliff in 2021. So not a huge amount to go back and look at. Share price performance since listing has not been fantastic. It listed at about £4 a share and it's about £2 now. It's down 17% in the last two years and 55% in the last year. My view is it's, it's an interesting business to follow. I don't consider it to be particularly investable just because it's firstly very dependent on government policy and it's very, very expensive. Ash, no, it, could, it could grow into the current valuation and still look expensive. It's not entirely clear how profitable it's going to be and it does have the problem that if it's too profitable, 
mm-hmm. they might end up getting nationalized. So yeah, I know they've got the international stuff, but that's the majority of the revenue. About eighty percent of the revenue comes from the UK. Mm. So how as to how fruitful international would be, I don't know. So so for me, it's just very expensive, and I I do sympathise with them. The, the pandemic absolutely hammered them, but. Mm. The figures since listing are atrocious. <laughs> what are your thoughts, John? Uh, yeah, pretty much the same. And I think with cost of living crisis and things, like you say, if they start to do better, then they're at risk of political... I mean, they may be at risk of political intervention anyway, and nationalisation or, yeah, the, the government sort of launching their own equivalent. But, I yeah, I wouldn't have thought it's an investable company at the moment. I do like the product. I like using it. And the e-tickets are very straightforward, nice app. But I, I wouldn't go any further than that. Yeah, I, I like the product as well. I'd put it in yeah. the same camp as Uber. It's a very good product. Delivery, yeah. Yeah, it's yeah. Just, just not a very good business. Fine. Right, shall we move on to a much better business? Yeah, one of your favourites. It is, yeah. Um, yeah. I'm, I, well, I'll, I'll come on to it. I, I like it more than I did. Kingfisher, the FTSE 100 DIY retailer, which is best known for B&Q and Screwfix, they had their full-year results out this week with revenue up 9.7% on a constant currency basis to £13.1 billion and an operating profit rising 24.7% to £1.14 billion, driven by strong demand across both retail and trade channels. Like-for-like sales were up 9.9% and 18.1% on pre-pandemic levels, with increased transaction volumes and average basket sizes. E-commerce sales were up 5.3% and 171% on pre-pandemic levels, with multi-channel engagement remaining high. E-commerce sales now account for 18% of overall group sales. Retail profit was up 16.7%, with growth of 16.6% to £794 million in the UK and Ireland, and 22.5% in France to £221 million. Free cash flow came in at £385 million, which was down 59% on the previous year, reflecting a reversal of inventory-driven working capital inflow in the prior year. Net debt to EBITDA stood at one time compared with 0.9 times the previous year. And in terms of outlook, the group reported an encouraging start to the first quarter with resilient demand across all markets, but they remain mindful of the heightened macroeconomic and geopolitical uncertainty that has emerged since the start of the year. The group stated that they've been gaining market share in the UK and France, effectively managing their product availability in supply chain and infl- inflationary pressures. They're planning on developing the e-commerce marketplace further, expanding Screwfix in the UK and France, opening new stores in Poland, and further penetrating the trade customer. They comment that they will continue with the cost reduction initiatives and think that the COVID pandemic has established longer term trends that are supportive to the industry with a renewed importance of home, more working from home and a new generation of DIYers. In terms of valuation, Kingfisher has a market capitalization of £5.8 billion, trades at just 10 times earnings with a dividend yield of around 3%. I'd initially been, when we first covered Kingfisher on the show, I'd initially been quite wary of it as a traditional bricks and mortar retailer, which 
I was worried would be eaten up by the online competition with very price sensitive customers. And I thought that this might be particularly acute after COVID-19, which had maybe inflated those or I suppose catalyzed existing trends and whether things would drop back after that. And those bigger those big players from the US like Amazon might eat up Kingfisher. But I think actually it's seeing the Kingfisher offering and the physical retail combined with that sort of click and collect and e-commerce, which I think is probably particularly appealing to those sort of the on-trade customers using the warehouses and the stores efficiently in a similar way to next. I see a bit more why Kingfisher could be a good and I suppose, well, very profitable business going forward. I'm a bit more bullish on it now for sure. And I don't think 10, for 10 times earnings, it seems very cheap to me. And I have, yeah, I had some of those concerns, particularly by you, Sam, actually, uh, alleviated that, you know, the more times we look at it. So, yeah, I, I'd say maybe it might, well, could be going to the watch list, I think. Oh, what are your I like thoughts? it. It's, it's, not, yeah. it's definitely not the sexiest business in the world, but that's not what we're looking for. I think, I actually think the e-commerce is very good. I know it's only up 5%, mm. but it's up 5% on the COVID figures. So over two years, yeah. it's 171%. So it's just yeah. the people who have been forced to use the e-commerce last year have stuck with it. Mm. And I think eight, considering, because I, I do think it's the type of business where a lot of people, they want to go in and they probably do want to speak to someone or they do want to like feel it in the hand. Mm. You know, if it, I think it's a lot harder to get that same customer service from Amazon. So I think 18% of the sales is a good proportion considering what they actually sell and what they do. Mm. I, I I would like to see it higher. And I think similar to what you said, I could see it being sort of a next sort of model, sort of business model where it, it does actually work very well in terms of utilizing the bricks and mortar to strengthen mm. the online. I mean, they are very, very good results. And considering they are on, these aren't the COVID results anymore. These are being compared to the COVID results. I think they're, they're fantastic. I think to, I mean, mm. they, and it shows as well. I think the management's belief in the business that the dividend's going up fifty yeah. percent. Yeah. So, I've, and ten times earnings. So it's now it's it's got a yield of three percent. Ten times earnings. I mean, the share price has actually it's not done very well since we started covering it. But I mean, it's probably it's not gone down very much. It's maybe gone from like twelve to ten times earnings, but. I think you can just buy it and forget about it. I think that's probably a good thing about it. And it's at 10 times earnings, you know, unless earnings fall off a cliff, it's it's a pretty cheap stock, really. And if they continue yeah. with the international yeah. expansion, if they continue, and the fact that it's like Kingfisher, I mean, B&Q is absolutely massive. How have they increased their market share in the UK? You just wouldn't, <laughs> you'd think <laughs> they already it had it all. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, no, I, I think there's a lot to like, and I think it's a very, very good business. I think it's an underappreciated business. Yeah, well, by me included, that that was uh, but covering it, yeah, covering it. And like you say, it's not the sexiest business. It's just very reliable. Let's have a look at the last five years. Let's see what they look like. Let's see how wrong it was. I sort of vaguely remember it being quite flat pre-COVID. Yeah, it had been quite flat, so... 2017 to 2019 sales only increased from 11.2 billion to 11.6 billion then to 11.5 in 2020 and 12.3 in 2021 
than the operating profit uh, profit before tax. Yeah, profit before tax. It's it's, net, it's basically in line with twenty seventeen. So it's not it's not massive growth. But I guess when you look at the figures, it's putting up at some point that will start to feed through, especially with the international. So no, yeah. I like it. For the watch list, for the buy list. Yeah, no, it's it's good enough for the watch list. The the only concern I would have is you know in the U, as well as it's doing in the UK, I I feel like it is pretty saturated. Yeah, I, I think you could argue if they did if they could do what Next has been able to do, they might not necessarily need to increase the revenue that much. If they could shift more of it online, it might be they could they can improve the margins and they get the extra profit that way. Or maybe if if they're doing it online, they can get the current customers buying more or something like that. But I think it's really it's the international that you'd really be hoping for because they do have mm. a, a surprisingly big European presence. European presence. So, no, I, I like it. And I think at yeah. 10 as well, there's not that much of a risk there. <laughs> yeah. If it re-rates to eight. Yes, it's not a disaster. Yeah, yeah. Whereas you've got a lot further to go with Fever Tree. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Mm. For not too dissimilar growth rates based on the guidance. <laughs> okay. Okay, on to your wealth manager, Schroeder's. Yes, Schroders, who have we have covered before. But yeah, they are, they are a wealth fund manager, so like financial products is that sort of thing they offer. Yeah, so they've got three main segments, asset management, wealth management, and the group segment. Asset management is investment management, including advisory services, in respect of equity, fixed income, multi-asset solutions, and private assets and alternative products. Wealth management is investment management, wealth planning and banking services. And the group segment is the investment capital and treasury management activities, corporate development and strategy activities, and the management of costs associated with government and corporate management. The company also offers UK advisory, fiduciary management and derivatives business. So they have come out with their full year results. They highlighted that their three-year investment performance a key performance indicator for the group was strong again, as 79% of their, ass- their assets outperformed their relevant comparator. And that is their relevant comparator, not necessarily, you know, the world index or something like that. Not the benchmark that the investor way. No, they, yeah, they wouldn't. They, I doubt they outperform the comparator we'd pick, but I guess if they're selling <laughs> a certain type of asset, they'll use the same benchmark as everyone else because otherwise they're just shooting themselves of in course. the foot. So they're outperforming everyone else offering the same types of assets, but whether or not those assets are the best place to park your money is another thing. They generated net new business of 35.3 billion, which represented an annual organic growth rate of 5%. Their assets under management increased by 10% or from 663 billion at December 2020 to a high of 731.6 billion. They said their strong financial performance reflects the benefit of the investments they've made in recent years. They've developed the capabilities in the strategic growth areas of private assets and alternatives and wealth management, expanded their geographic reach and evolved their product range. So their net income increased by 18% to 2.5 billion. Operating expenses increased in line with net income, so by 17% to 1.3 billion. Profit before tax and exceptional items was up 19% to 836 million. Profit before tax was up 25% to 764 million. Profit after tax was up 28% to 623 million. Basic earnings per share before exceptional items was up 22% to 244 million. Basic earnings per share was up 28% to 220 million. And the dividend was up 7% to £1.22 a share. 
and there were a few interesting points from the slides. So their assets under management, which is now a record 731 billion, for the last five years, that's grown at a compound annual growth rate of 10% a year. So that's up from 453 million in 2016 to 731 million this year. And in terms of the revenue diversification by business area, 16% of the revenue comes from private assets, private assets and alternatives, 32% from mutual funds, 14% from wealth management, 11% from solutions, and 27% from the institutional side of the business. In terms of the assets under management growth for the last five years for the different areas, in the last five years, private assets and alternatives is up 120%, solutions is up 120%, Mutual funds is up is up twenty nine percent. Institutionals up seventeen percent. Wealth management's up one hundred and five percent, and joint ventures and associates is up seventy two percent. They've highlighted the private assets and alternatives assets under management is up sixteen percent year over year, and that's being driven primarily by strong net new business. Private assets under management has grown at a 17% compound annual growth rate from 2016 to 2021, growing from 24.4 billion to 53.7 billion. And they've said that their diversification towards higher longevity areas is paying off. So their gross outflow rate dropped to 18%, and the average longevity now is at four point is at 5.3 years, and that's up from 4.1 years in 2016. Um so I'm interpreting gross outflows. I'm assuming that's just how long on average a client remains with them. So in terms of the valuation, business is trading at a PE ratio of 13 with a dividend yield of 3.48. And if we look at the past five years figures, pretty steady grower. Uh, revenues up in the past five years from 2.5 billion to 2.9 billion operating profit pretty much in line it's actually down slightly earnings per share is about in line and the dividends up slightly i think these are good results it's a pretty it's probably fairly similar to kingfisher and it's a, it's a pretty steady business i think the valuation is pretty fair i think i think the dividend yield of 3.48 percent is quite attractive i think it's a business with a very very good long-term focus i think and especially if, if you do want to learn more about it, I'd go back and listen to the interview we did with John Kingham because he talks about it much better. But it's, it's a very, very long-term focused business. And it does just get it done. And I, th I think I appreciate it's been helped by the environment we're operating in, but it's it has put up some very good figures there. I think every figure really is probably moving in the right direction. I don't think there's really any negative in there. And I think a B of 13 is pretty fair. John, what are your thoughts on this business and the valuation? I mean, it's certainly not an expensive business. I'll have to go back and listen to John Kingham's analysis of it. One of the, with, with all of these wealth managers, one of the things I do worry about is, I suppose, the race to the bottom and a lot of these very low cost tracking funds coming into the market and whether in the longer term people are going to be switching to those rather than staying with established wealth managers. But I suppose so far they have stood the test of time and Trodus has been around for more than 200 years. So that that may not be um, uh, you know, correct, uh, but it's, I suppose it's a worry that I would have. It, well, Schroders is as well. It's a very global business. 
so what's happening in the UK could, you know, in, in emerging markets, it could take years for that to feed through there. And even then, we, do, we don't know how it's going to look. So as an example, only only 32% of the revenue actually comes from mutual funds. It is fairly well diversified across like the different segments. So even then, you'd, you'd, they'd have so long to adapt. And they, they have, well, it is a very good business that they probably would. I don't, I don't know how much people are going to come in and steal in terms of their market share. Mm. I mean, Vanguard have launched their sort of, well, they've got a direct consumer platform mm. and they are in, in the UK. I'm not sure how it's doing, but they're launching a sort of a, a, a low cost advisory service. AJ Bell have, I think they're they plan to introduce one. Hargreaves are doing one. Am I right? Yeah. 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 So I think there are a lot more players entering the market and of that of that sort of low-cost variety. Yeah. I mean, another thing that uh, John King talks about is just the name. It, do, it does mean something. You, you yeah. know, if you want, yeah. if, you know, if you're talking about protecting, for example, like intergenerational wealth. Yeah. You know you can rely on Schroders. Yeah. Because they have I, been around I, for 200 years. Yeah. No, I, 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 no, I wouldn't disagree with that. And it's not, you know, this isn't this isn't like an expensive stock anyway. You might just pay your, your PE of 13. You might get a fair <laughs> price appreciation of only 5 or 10% a year and you might take your 3% dividend and go home. Yeah. Whereas maybe yeah. if you'd gone to Hargreaves or AJ Bell, you could have done a, you could have got slightly higher returns. But yeah, I think it's fairly priced for what it is. Yeah. No, fair enough. One you'd buy? Probably not. I, in spite of what I just said, I would. Pref- I own Hargreaves, and I would prefer to continue to own it. Okay. I, I think, but then you've you've got your own set of issues on the future for Hargreaves as well. So yeah, yeah that's right. so I don't own any. Okay, fine. And I'm not sure that I'll be saying the next uh, that that about the the next company, Acardo, the online grocery retailer. So they had their first quarter trading statement out this week with Acardo Retail. The joint venture that they have with MS seeing sales decline 5.7% to £564.7 million. It was again up against tough comparators with, from the pandemic, um, with the wider UK grocery market sales down 4%. Average orders per week grew 11.6% to 367,500. However, that was more than offset by a 15% fall in average basket size to £124. They announced that the Vista Customer Fulfillment Centre was opening later this year, adding capacity for an extra 30,000 orders per week. A new Zoom facility with the same-day delivery capability is also opening in Canning Town this spring with further sites to, in the pipeline. Cardo also commented that they had seen a significant increase in costs from raw materials to energy, and they were attempting to pass these on to the customers through higher prices. Full year revenue growth is set to be lower than previously guided, around 10% rather than mid-teens, and underlying EBITDA expected to come under pressure. Shares were down 7.5% on the news, and if we look at the valuation of the company, it has a market cap of just under 10 billion, trades at about 2.9 times sales, and that's broadly in line with its 10-year average. I mean, I thought clearly the trading update was disappointing, but investors buy the shares for the potential of the end-to-end online grocery platform with the incredible Ocado solutions, which, Sam, you've talked about on previous episodes, 
which charges the third-party retailers to use the Ocado algorithm and the robotic systems and technologies within their automated trademark grid system in the fulfillment centers or the, the warehouses, really. So I suppose you're investing for the longer term and the value that's sort of contained within that rather than, I suppose, some of the some of the numbers that you see in the Ocado, the, the purely the retail part. It's that longer term vision for it. Not one for me, but Sam, have you any thoughts on on the business Ocado as a business? I think these are very poor results, actually. I think in in the past, or it's a it's a, it's a poor statement anyway. In the past, we've covered it, and you know we've had quite a bit to say about the valuation, but it's it's certainly through we've covered it throughout the pandemic, and it's it's been getting the job done. It's been doing a good job at growing the business, but when and I, I appreciate what you say that it's just on the retail side, but if their sales dropped five point seven percent and the UK grocery market was down four percent, they've actually lost market share, and that's not good. It is priced for growth and it's not delivering it. And not only is it not delivering on the growth, it's also got costs eating up into it the other way. It's interesting. It's interesting to look at the share price because it was. It's not too long ago we talked about it on the show because it had a higher market cap than Tesco very briefly. I think it was yeah. over twenty five pounds a share. I think it might have been approaching thirty. Uh, it's now at under eleven pounds a share, so it's down about sixty percent from the highs. It's priced as if the pandemic never happened now. It's given back pretty much all the pandemic gains. But the problem is it was very expensive before the pandemic. So I, I still wouldn't say it's a cheap stock. I think these. I think this statement's quite poor. And I think they, they probably know that as well. That's probably why they felt the need to issue it. But yeah, I can see why the market's reacted to it the way it has, because it is priced for growth. And it's not, if you'll pardon the pun, it's not delivering. <laughs> Okay, fine. On to our US company then, Bumble. Yes, Bumble. So for anyone who doesn't know, Bumble is the parent company of Bumble, Badu and Fruits. The Bumble platform enables people to connect and build equitable and healthy relationships. It's a dating app. It's not really said that, but that's what it is. Founded by CEO Whitney Wolf Heard in 2014, Bumble was one of the first dating apps built with women at the centre. Badu, which was founded in 2006, is one of the pioneers of web and mobile dating products. Fruits, founded in 2017, encourages open and honest communication of dating intentions through playful fruit metaphors. <laughs> haven't tried that one. Okay. <laughs> so they have come out with their Q4 and full year results. I should say as well, this is a stock that only fairly recently went public. I'll just check. So it only went public in March last year. So they've only been listed for about, well, just about a year now so i'll start with the ceo whitney wolf heard statement she said we're pleased to deliver another quarter of strong revenue and adjusted ebitda growth and are excited to add fruits to our family of global market leading apps in our first year as a public company and with our mission at the forefront of everything we do we successfully executed on our core strategic priorities driving scale and engagement increasing monetization and improving profitability in addition to its fourth quarter and full year 2021 results, oh, this is this that's this isn't the statement. This is part of the earnings statement, but it's not the CEO that's saying this now. In addition to announcing its fourth quarter and full year 2021 results, Bumble has also announced it is discontinuing its operations in Russia, as well as removing all its apps from the app, Apple App Store and Google Play Store in Russia and Belarus. 
The combined revenue from Russia, Ukraine and Belarus was approximately 2.8% of Bumble revenue in 2021, almost all in Badu app and other revenue. Russia, Belarus and the UK and the Ukraine contribute less than 0.1% of the Bumble app revenue. So if we look at just the fourth quarter results, then we'll get back, we'll go to the full year ones. But for the fourth quarter, revenue increased 25.7% to 208.2 million. This includes an unfavorable impact of 1.5 million from foreign currency movements. The Bumble app revenue was up 42.2% to 150 million. Badu app and other revenue decreased 3.5% to 57.7 million. Total paying users increased 10.6% to 3 million. Total average revenue per paying user was $22.83 compared to $20.02 a year ago. Net loss was $14.7 million or 7% of revenue compared to a net loss of 15.8% of revenue a year ago. Adjusted EBITDA was 26.3% of revenue compared to 26.6% of revenue a year ago. If we go to the full year figures now, revenue was $765.7 million. And that compares to 542.2 million a year ago. Why have they not given the comparative? So that's 41% revenue growth. I don't know why they haven't given us that because it's quite a good figure. So you'd think they'd want to point out the percentage. And Bumble app revenue was 532.9 million. And that's up 58% compared to a year ago. Badu app revenue was only up about 10 or 15 percent from 205 million to 232 million total paying users increased 15.5 percent to 2.9 million total average revenue per user was 21.68 compared to 18.89 net earnings loss was 37.5 percent of revenue compared to 20.3 percent a year ago adjusted ebitda was 27.1 percent of revenue compared to 26.4 percent a year ago and they've said, we finished 2021 with a strong fourth quarter, highlighted by Bumble App's 42% year-over-year revenue growth and an increase of 108,000 paying subscribers quarter over quarter, added the CFO. We expect Bumble App to have, an, app to have another strong year in 2022 and grow revenue 34 to 36% year-over-year, driven by continued international expansion and product innovation. So in terms of the paying users, looks like they've got, 1.6 million now for Bumble and 1.3 million for Badu apps and other paying users, so giving them a total of 2.9 million. Average revenue per paying user for the final quarter was $30.57 for Bumble and $13 for Babu and Badu and other apps. And that gives a total average revenue per paying user of $22.83. They've given guidance for the 2022 year as well. And they've said they expect revenue in the range of 934 944 million, which is I think it'll be the 34 to 36% that was mentioned by the CFO. And they expect the adjusted EBITDA margin to be in the range of 26.5 to 27%. The revenue outlook is based on the following considerations. That's the revenue growth of 34 to 36% for the Bumble app and a loss of approximately $20 million of revenue from Russia, Ukraine, and Belarus due to the conflict in the company's subsequent decision to remove all of its apps from the Apple App Store and Google Play Store in Russia and Belarus. This will predominantly impact the Badu app and other revenue. And they're expecting an unfavorable impact of approximately 20 million from foreign currency movements. 
and they've said the adjusted EBITDA outlook does not assume additional costs that would be incurred if Google mandates Google Play billing, which starts in April 1st, 2022. If it were enforced, it would result in incremental costs of $16 million for the remainder of the year. And the range does also not factor in additional savings from further app store changes that may have a favorable impact. In terms of valuation, since listing businesses being cut in half, and it's now got a market cap of about 5.38 billion. It's, as we've known as well, the shares actually jumped about, so these results came out a week ago, the shares actually jumped about 15%, 50% on these results. So I don't know if people were just expecting the, the Russian side of the business to have had a much more of an impact. But yeah, price to sales is seven, and the price to adjusted EBITDA, I don't know how useful that metric is, but you can have it, it's 26. And if we compare that to their, main competitor which is match group match is five times larger in terms of market cap has a price to sales of 10 and a price to adjusted ebitda of 65 john what are your thoughts on these results and bumble as a business i mean i think they're very impressive results um in terms of revenue growth and i guess it's that future prof- profitability and how much you're willing to pay up for it i think for me it'd probably be one that i'd watch and wait and see although it's obviously growth trend and see whether it can you know when they start getting the earnings through i might take another look what do you think about the competitors out there to bumble because obviously there are a number of dating apps well i think match has the better apps that's why it's five times bigger match has match mm-hmm. group i think it might have like eHarmony. it's got tinder it's got hinge it's it's got a much better portfolio of apps whereas bumble it's bumble and badu and I think Bumble's really the only decent sized one. I, I mm. think if I was going to look at this industry, and it is it is an industry I would take a serious look at because I think there probably is a lot of money to be made. And I think it's an industry the dating apps are going to be around for a long, long time, I think. Mm. And I think there's, you know, whatever new mediums we get in terms of like apps or websites or whether it seems some like VR thing, I think they're going to be both Bumble and Match, they're going to be able to just move their brands across to the new platform i don't think anyone's going to come and dislodge them really my view of stuff like that is unless i've got a very good reason not to i'd always want the market leader and match is by far and away the market leader i only had a very brief look at match i don't think we've ever covered it properly on the show the initial reaction is it looks quite expensive but if if you had a deeper dig into it i think it is essentially a monopoly really um yeah (laughs) in terms of you know i mean bumble it's got a very small market share compared to match match has all the best brands They've got the pricing power. They've got all the people on there. I, I think really, if I was looking at the space, I don't think there's anything in these results that's not made me think, well, I won't even take a look at match. I would, I'd probably have a, a good dig into match with the view to invest in that. I, I wouldn't, I, I don't think I'd invest in Bumble. What about you? There, uh, yeah, I would, uh, same argument. I was going to say, are there any new disruptors coming through? Or is, is that Bumble? Well, Bumble wasn't around. Bumble's fairly recent, but I, th- I think if one of them gets big enough, like it's, it's they get bought. Because I think Matt, if you look, wait, um, I'll just Google it. Let's have a look at what brands match on. Yeah, they must they must buy them. They can't create all these. They must just try and buy one as soon as it's big enough. But yeah, Match has Tinder, Match.com, Meetit, OkCupid, Hinge, Plenty of Fish, Ship, and Our Time. And I mean, this is just off Wikipedia, so it's not fantastic information. This In 2019, they had 9.2 million subscribers. 
So that's three times larger than Bumble's figures. And you can bet they've gone up quite a lot from 2019 to 2022. Mm. I'm surprised no one's updated the Wikipedia since 2019. If, if anyone listening wants to go and do that, then next time we're on the show, we'll be able to give you more up-to-date figures. It looks like Ryan Reynolds is on the board of directors, so there's another plus for it. Yeah, so look, here it says, in February 2021, Match Group announced it would be acquiring a South Korean-based social networking company, HyperConnect, for $1.73 billion. August 2020, they surpassed 10 million subscribers across the portfolio. And they've actually got even more dating services as well. Loads you've never heard of. Ablo, Black People Meet, Chisper, Disson's Domain, Upward, True, Ship. But yeah, I, I suspect once once some... I mean, most of the big ones you'd think by now have sort of been thought of. So I, th- I think if someone comes up with some quirky little one and they're probably just going to get bought out by Match or Bumble at some point, that would be my guess. Would you have a preference between the two? I appreciate we've not really looked at Match in much detail at all. I think it would just be that it's the market leader, it's got the better brands, and I'd probably be inclined to pay up for that. I mean, that would be... But I'd have to have a look at it in a bit more detail. But yeah, it's, it's probably an industry that I would, I would look into a bit more because I think you know the, the margins on it huge yeah yeah i'd agree with that um, um especially if, and the, the scope if I, the scope to yeah to grow revenue from existing users as well and as well i don't know if you've seen it but apple and google have come under a lot of pressure in the last couple of years on the app store fees so if they get bullied down that could be quite big for match yeah. and bumble yeah. so of the six companies we've talked about this week, Fevertree, Trainline, Kingfisher, Schroders, Ocado, and Bumble. If you had to buy one, which one would it be? I'd probably go for Kingfisher this week. Uh, the first time. I'm sorry to be boring, but I'd go for Kingfisher as well, I think. <laughs> not Bumble. Not Bumble, no. Okay, no, maybe not Bumble. Match. May- maybe Match. I'd have to have a proper look into it. And just have a look at the growth and stuff like that. Because I mean, Yahoo Finance is showing it at a PE of 112. Looks like price adjusted EBITDA was 65, but that's still quite expensive. So I think you still have to believe quite a lot in the future of the business. Although I suspect it, it's it's one of it's like the classic, like most of the American companies. If you actually have a look, the earnings are low, but it's because it's all going into like sales and marketing. And that's coming yeah. out. That's you're getting an artificially lower earnings. So if you looked at it and said with Match Group, well, how much do they need to spend on sales and marketing? And then to try to strip some of that out that's not just growing the business, you might find it's actually, it could be at a P of like 20 or something if you want if it wanted to. But it's the sort of business I would definitely take a look at. I think it's a very, very good business. Well, thank you for joining and we'll see you again next time. See you next week. Thank you for listening to The Investor Way. To get in touch, please follow us on Twitter at TIW Tweets. This podcast is for entertainment purposes only and does not constitute financial advice. Neither Sam nor Jonathan are financial advisors. For investment advice, please consult professional advisors.